0: Right, go ahead. Okay. I think uh I think that Yeah, I think we owe them donuts. I think so. (laughs) Hi, welcome to the Talking Threads. (laughs) <laughs> um, this is a podcast on costume design, and it's costume design analysis for everything from film to television, international productions as well, and foreign language productions, and also animation and gaming. Our episode today uh, is The Big Lebowski. Mm. It was done in 1998. It was written and directed by the Coen brothers, and it was costume designed by Mary Zovers. She is famous for La La Land, um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, Catch Me If You Can, No Country for Old Men, True Grit, Interstellar, The Ballad of Busker Scruggs. Um, She is a prolific costume designer. Um, We're going to be talking about her work today on The Big Lebowski. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why don't you tell us, Jesse Kate, about the story synopsis? By the way, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. So to sum it up, Jeff the Dude Lebowski is an
1: easygoing man on a simple quest to get his ruined rug replaced. That's right. It smells like
0: uh, henchman pee. (laughs) It does.
1: So when this small, simple action leads him deep into the world of a mistaken identity, the dude enlists his loyal bowling buddies to help him navigate a world of millionaires, nihilists, feminists, and porn producers.
0: Oh, that's right. All out to get him. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, right? Oh, yeah.
1: So full of comedic hijinks and plenty of white Russians, we follow the dude's attempt to take it easy as everyone around him tries to use him for his own agendas. Will he ever return to his peaceful existence? Will he make it in time for his bowling <laughs> tournament? Will he ever
0: get his rug replaced? Yeah, so this film is definitely like the perfect example of a capsule design
1: mm-hmm.
0: where we see all of these characters that are like the heightened versions right. of real people, and they don't have an evolution through the story per se, mm-hmm. but they have an intrinsic um, – how would you say that? Like an intrinsic point of view mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that that just won't ever change. Like even though, for example, Walter, who's played by John Goodman, right? Walter is challenged – on his uh, point of view and his um, abrupt behavior and his his (laughs) always-over-the-top reaction to everything. yeah, Um, Countless times throughout the the film, I think that the dude always, like in almost every scene they're in together, Mm -hmm. the dude always responds to him and says, what the hell, man? Right? Yeah. And uh, still, that character never changes his behavior so right. we we have this like perfect example of costume design as mm-hmm. reinforcing these heightened uh, characters mm-hmm. in a in a sort of capsule that they're never going to change.
1: Right, that's definitely something that is is notable in the story. Like you were saying, everybody is in a stasis in their point of view, yeah. and the way that we follow through the story is just mixing and matching the dynamics of these static points of view. Mm-hmm. And so, in the resistance to each other, we create plot, yeah. but they themselves don't evolve as individuals by the end of the story. They all return yeah. to their original state.
0: Yeah, exactly. So it's like a blip in time. These mm-hmm. are like I kind of think of the Big Lebowski as the first real um sort of like like pot adventure movie, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's not it's not really based on that, but it has that feeling that we mm-hmm. start to really see in the in the 2000s mm-hmm. where we get all of these um all of these movies about characters that don't necessarily change, but are put into these extraordinary circumstances mm-hmm. because of their recreation. Mm-hmm. So like the Hangover movies, for example. Right. I would say that The Big Lebowski had a lot to do with the popularity of movies like that. So what were you, because you hadn't seen it before we're talking about it right now, right?
1: No, I saw it with Tong a little bit earlier, my husband. Mm-hmm. I, I really liked it. I was really entertained by it, and I think a big reason was because um, I I like when stories highlight a character who is passive in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. It's so hard to find stories where that character is really um, interesting enough to follow when they themselves are, their intention is to resist action. And so, to put this character through the ringer, essentially, and kind of force them into uh, coming to the surface, having a little bit more of a voice, and then pulling back into their passivity, I was just really happy. I was happy to see a film that actually just highlighted that type of character. So, to me, one of the things that stood out uh, the most, probably similar in this kind of concept of like the pop movie, right? You're saying, um, is a feature of this type of passivity. Um, in psychology is like self-narcotization when you your actions and everything you do is to to calm yourself from conflict Mm. to separate yourself from tension yeah right take it easy like just chill out all of those actions aren't out of a complete apathy it's this this, this desire to don't let's not bring it up I don't I don't want to deal with the emotions I'd rather kind of just repress them back sure um, and so I saw him as a more complex character than I think you might if you were just looking at it on the surface. Oh, he's just this passive, laid-back, chill guy. But I'm looking at it and saying, well, psychologically, that's somebody who's feels lost. Yeah. And has kind of lost themselves. And so in order to not have anybody bring that up, in order to camouflage themselves into the environment, mm-hmm. they detach through drinking and smoking sure. or, or clothing that is really not engaged. Yeah. And so that's sure. kind of the, the most notable
0: stuff that I noticed. According to the script and like the dude's backstory, his like mm. official backstory, yeah, yeah. he had written the original Heron Project and all sorts of things. So he was like a definite protester. He had right. been in activism probably in, you know, the late 60s, like during the um, summer of love, like the Woodstock era. Yeah. So he he was kind of this um, hippie that found himself in Venice Beach in California, which Um, I don't know if you've had the chance to go over there, but it can be a trip. The last time I was there, I saw there was this huge drum circle in the center of the beach. And then they ran out of drums. So some people rolled over the trash cans and started banging on the trash cans. (laughs) Like, it's definitely a haven for this kind of, you know, this kind of character. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. rich and full of that. And um, so there was definitely this sense of, like, he's, he's smart. right? He just doesn't. He just doesn't hold the philosophy that he needs to be productive. Exactly. Right. Right.
1: right. So yeah. there is that. There is that uh, action and inaction right there. Like he's this advocate. He has this point of view. He has this this opinion that's strong. hmm But so does everybody else, and equally, you see a lot of inaction in there in yeah. their follow through.
0: So, actually, if you look at it, if you look at like their actions throughout the film particularly he and Walter where Mm -hmm. Walter just takes everything to such an extreme right he Mm -hmm. he has specific rules and he specifically says in um the famous you're entering a world of pain scene he says why don't people just follow the rules and uh you can see him following the rules of his own sort of conspiratorial logic throughout the film it's just it's so fucking great he so he um Uh, He yells about that, and then you see that every time he gets involved in the situation that the dude is in, that he takes it to such an extreme that the logic um, kind of fails him. And what the dude is going to do in all of these circumstances— probably would have led to the outcome that he wanted which was to get $20,000 and to get that rug. <laughs> right? right, right, right. <laughs> So everything would have worked out for him if he right. just actually delivered the money mm-hmm. if it hadn't been thrown out the window with what was it? His like dirty socks and it's underwear his dirty or underwear. <laughs> Walter's dirty underwear out of the right. car yeah. um, so all of those things would have actually worked out mm-hmm. for the dude mm-hmm. if Walter hadn't taken them to the extreme or at least mm-hmm. I think that that's part of the absurdity of the film and part of the um, part of the uh, enjoyment of it you know the dude is going to do what he's asked to do yeah. so that he can get the things that he wants and then Walter takes them to somewhere where they don't need to be yeah. and so I, I think that that is a huge part of the film as well right you see I think you see some allusions to that
1: in in this in these trips that he has whether it's because he's blacking out or he's yeah. drugged right um, and he's consistently the bowling ball. Yeah, he has
0: action, but he's being moved by something. Oh, fascinating! I didn't even catch the idea that the yeah. dude was the bowling ball. Right. I was too. I was too involved. I have to say, in a Julianne Moore wearing the Valkyrie outfit with <laughs> the bowling a bowling ball too, boobs. Yeah. Oh my god! Like that thing just is perfection. Um,
1: it's pretty. It's pretty good.
0: Yeah. yeah. So speaking of. Uh, these kinds of like iconic looks and stuff. Mm -hmm. What are some iconic looks for you? Like, what did you pull out? The opening scene is obviously the most kind of impactful. We're really setting the
1: tone for a character. This is the case for most films. Our first impression is is a big deal, right? And we have this man walking into a grocery store in his pajamas, you know, like some plaid boxers, this drab shirt, a a robe. Mm -hmm. It all looks like it's from the thrift store. It's been the same one he's had forever. It doesn't really look new or maintained. It's just like he he slept, he woke up, he slept, he woke up, and he hasn't changed. That's the kind of vibe you get from this, right? He also has this pair of jelly Shoes Mm -hmm. that are just meaningless and inappropriate for pretty much any social circumstance I can think of
0: like like any person who isn't <laughs> a teenage girl right <laughs> it's just why, yeah
1: it, it isn't it isn't a grown man's outfit right yeah um his hair is is just generally thoughtless it's you know his beard's there because he probably didn't shave it doesn't necessarily feel like it's a statement to me as much as it just mm-hmm. feels like it grew out and he didn't stop it
0: yeah same with his hair right right this is actually really interesting cuz um, Mary Zofers has talked about this choice mm-hmm. cuz I listed the robe ensemble that I wears to Ralph's which Mm -hmm. is the grocery store out here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I listed that as being one of his iconic looks as well Mm -hmm. and so it's um, uh, first off I think one of the the real great things about it is he wears his sunglasses Mm -hmm. and when he's sitting on the toilet after being what are, what is it called when you get like a whirly? Is that what it's called? A <laughs> whirly when your head is dunked in the toilet? Oh,
1: like a swirly. swirly. It's a swirly. <laughs> so when I'm he glad gets the know because it's not like, a personal
0: experience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so when he gets the swirly mm-hmm. and he comes back up and he sits on the toilet and mm-hmm. he puts his sunglasses on, I'm like, yes. oh my god. But so yes, essentially, Mary Zofer said that the. The important things about what the dude is wearing is that he's he's never separated his laundry, mm. right? So all of the colors kind of muddled together. <laughs> right. They all you know? just
1: tint slightly yeah, towards each other. Yeah, right? everything
0: tints a little bit towards itself. So you get this, like, very faded palette. But he also um, probably has kept clothing for 20 years. So a lot of his clothing feels uh, like it's younger than he is. And for example, his shorts that you mentioned, those are actually shorts from the 60s. So it's as if he's kept them for that long, you know, 20 years or whatever it is. And um, then other things like Shopping at thrift stores, she specifically only shopped at thrift stores in Venice Beach at the time, mm-hmm. which is really smart because obviously if if your script is close to where you're able to do your prep yeah. as a costume designer, then that gives you a huge leg up because you can see the world around you as you're designing. Right. It's really, really great that she could take advantage of that. Also, the idea that he is terminally relaxed, which oh, was right. something that the Cohen brothers said. <laughs> that was the when, description
1: in the script, right? Yeah, in the yeah.
0: script. That's the description is that he's terminally, I think it's terminally relaxed or terminally lazy. I
1: think you're right. It's terminally relaxed.
0: Yeah. So... So as a response, she decided that he would be wearing a lot of elastic and pullover things that didn't have any fit so that he wouldn't have to uh, deal with buttons and zippers and things like that, for example. I mean, just as lazy as you could possibly be. And then even he wears this um, this great uh, uh, outfit when he's at the bowling league. He puts his hair back with a pin Right. And he has like that little hair clip that he wears (laughs) in his hair. But actually, that's like one of the little hair clips that hairstylists use to put your hair back momentarily. Mm. It's just plain silver. Like it's the cheapest, like best choice for this character ever. You
1: just can't even. Yeah, the dude just can't even. Like, it's it's the best. It's great. It it really aligns with like something that I that stood out to me in the dialogue that complements this same idea, which is that he rarely finishes a full sentence. Yeah, it all drifts off, and it's not just stammering. It's. The beginning of a thought that half finishes, and just he just stops talking, and someone yeah, else picks up. Yeah, he just can't be
0: bothered. Yeah, like he
1: just can't be bothered gave up. to finish mm-hmm. his thoughts. Like I, 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 got out of it what I wanted, and it, um, whatever.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly, Um So there were a couple of other things that I thought were really iconic for him, and that was his handyman outfit in the dream <laughs> sequence, because yeah. it is straight out of a porn. Oh, you know what I mean? it's like it's period <laughs> pornography that he's in like this workman's outfit with his sleeves ripped oh, okay, off. That
1: makes more sense. Now. Oh, I, I was I was like, there's got to be something in that. But yeah,
0: just obviously haven't watched enough. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. My, my, I'm not that porn savvy,
1: to be honest. <laughs>
0: so so that outfit, I think, is just it feels exactly like a porn skit, which is mm. perfect because he's thinking about Mod and he's like right. like he's had this super surreal experience with her and everything so he has like his thoughts about mod and then the nihilists and like all that stuff all jumbled together so it makes Mm. perfect sense that he would be like Mm. like this guy being chased by um by all of that wearing basically a costume for a porn skit um and also I do love that he's this is a great little detail there's there was so much attention given to shoes in this movie and it's one of my favorite things ever I love when design takes shoes into account because you don't see them very often in film but when you do man they make a big impact so um uh, he was wearing champagne gold bowling shoes with his <laughs> with his like his worker's uniform mm. uh, the white worker uniform. Mhm. They cool do make shoes. a big fuss about the
1: shoes. I think about that. Like even the shots where we're like we're watching them put their shoes on and mm-hmm. you know like it, it is like yeah. a focus that is it is a, a an engagement.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it happens with a lot of the characters. Like we see Walter taking his shoes on and off in the bowling alley. We see um Jesus puts his shoes on. Mm-hmm. Right. And and you see that like very specifically that he's wearing purple bowling shoes that match his suit, which I mean, come on, like a fuchsia bowling suit. It's a onesie, too. It's one piece. It's a one piece with a red racing stripe down the side. I think I think I read that the Coen brothers had referred to it as like wanting it to be the one piece. But it was
1: up to her to sort of play with it beyond that.
0: That is. That costume, honestly, is so brilliant. And his pinky nail is uh, painted to match the racing stripes. Oh, my God. I didn't notice that. Yes. That's the best. That's it's so amazing. funny. It's amazing. And he's wearing that hairnet over his hair. Yeah. And um, he also, his belt mm-hmm. on that onesie mm-hmm. is so fantastic. It looks like a bowling ball hitting a strike. And actually, did you know? Did you know that, that there's uh, currently, right now, although by the time we release this, there won't be. Yeah. Um, uh, there's a sequel all about Jesus. Uh, what? At the ArcLight right now is called <laughs> "The Jesus Rolls," starring John Turturro. Oh my God! <laughs> reviving his reviving.
1: I might have his to go. Roll. I might have to go with Tong to that. Oh, I, might I be think, think date we can night. make Got a double date. Double date night. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Oh, so another costume that stood out to me especially. um, Donnie, to me, Mm -hmm. is so intriguing because he's so overlooked and stopped.
0: Yes. Shut the fuck up, Donnie. Right. It's just
1: constant. And something that, as I was watching it, I started to notice, Donnie doesn't wear the same uh, bowling shirt every time. It has a different name on it Mm -hmm. all the time. There is a scene where he literally just blends into the chair. He is the colors of the chair in the in the bowling alley. And when I looked at that, I'm like, wow, he really just ties the room together. Womp, womp. womp, womp. Yeah. The fact that they lose the rug and they lose Donnie and they both are that thing that just connects things together and is silent and overlooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just, that struck me so much.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I don't even have an iconic look for him on my list. Mm-hmm. Like, that's how much he's overlooked. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to design for a character like that because at first you think it's like that whole problem of peasant pajamas that you get in video games, right? Where you're like, "Oh, it's just a background character. They don't have that much to say." But then when you really when you use them as a story device rather than another body in the room. Right. Right. Oh, he's just another body in the room and he doesn't have anything to say. That doesn't mean that he can't have purpose in terms of the other characters that are so that are such squeaky wheels, you know, right. on screen. Yeah. Um, so he is a really interesting kind of character um, that does get overlooked because he's designed to be overlooked. Yeah. Right? And well, he's written yeah. to be overlooked and he's acted to be overlooked mm-hmm. until until he, you know, dies of a heart attack. Right.
1: Until, and that's the thing. It's until until he's gone, they don't really recognize him. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and that's the same thing. Until the rug's gone, it doesn't matter. It, didn't, it exactly. didn't make any impact. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, poor Donnie.
0: <laughs> Donnie's the rug. He's the rug. yeah <laughs> um. So, Walter uh, wore um, basically the same thing every single time we see him, just Mm -hmm. versions of the same. And he was a Vietnam vet. Right. And I really want to talk about the psychology of him because he is just— the The whole film film. he wore a fishing vest a polar some short some sort of short sleeve shirt Mm -hmm. that had a collar like he never wore t-shirts under it i don't think but it was always something with a collar like a polo shirt or a button-down shirt Mm -hmm. and then uh, a pair of you know like cargo shorts Mm -hmm. um, with tall black socks and then his bowling shoes and i don't remember seeing him ever change his shoes from being the bowling shoes i think he wore his bowling shoes almost everywhere right so, he's,
1: he's really consistent. I think the one scene where he's not wearing his fishing vest, he, he has like a, an army jacket, like a casual army yeah, jacket. Exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so he constantly wears these things that make him prepared. You know, he could um, – I think Mary said one time in an interview that he could have fishing lures in his fishing vest pocket or he could have a bullet. Mm-hmm. You know, So it's very utilitarian, like preparing for the worst, mm-hmm. making sure he has somewhere to stash everything. Right. It's definitely the sort of um, – conspiracy theorist's uh-huh. way of dressing. Yeah. And, of course, obviously, he was wearing his um, his dog tags most of the time. Not all right. the time, not always visibly, but, but right. you know, assuming that they were under his shirt all the time. Right. And the only time we see him dress differently than this mm-hmm. sort of um, uh, this equation, this, mm-hmm. this formula, was when he went to go see the theater production mm-hmm. and uh, when he went to interview the boy about his homework... <laughs> so, right. So he wore this suit. And he does. Full he, on, he, yeah, complete, right? complete suit. Yeah, brown suit with a button-up white shirt. You know, yeah. a dress shirt and that like yeah. kind of mustardy tie. Mm-hmm. And um, and he really went like full ham on it. Yeah. And I realized, you know, after watching it the second time for for this um for the podcast, mm-hmm. I realized that the reason he did that is that everything in Walter's mind is the most extreme version right right so the interaction with Annihilus was a war it was a battle zone Uh for him yeah yeah and um dropping off the money was the most extreme version of like a heist or kidnap movie that he'd ever seen and talking to the kid about his homework was a really intense interrogation and and like the the um league bowling was life or death for him and even his his ex wife's Pomeranian. It wasn't right. even a Pomeranian. It was just a little scrappy mutt. And he right. kept saying the dog has papers and like yeah. all this stuff. So everything that he wears is to be the most extreme version of himself. Right. And he he doesn't seem able to live or be comfortable as anything moderate. Like everything right. has to be the extreme for him. Right. He is also I mean, in
1: that in that uh in that extreme, he's also taking comfort in this reliance on what's familiar, right? Mm-hmm. I, I remember being a vet, that's where I stabilized, that's where rules made sense. Yeah. Like it was crazy and that's why it was wrong, this is right, this is wrong. Yeah. He wears this fishing vest that looks you you feel military from him, even though it's a fishing vest. It's not just preparedness, it's yeah. got that vibe in the shapes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and you also get this call back to his ex-wife, you know, he's talking about how he can't go out on, you know, Sunday and I can't go out because of this. And they and then you realize, oh, he's not even married to her. He's been he's been divorced for years, but he still follows her yeah. religious practice because that's that's the rules that he's doing and that stabilizes yeah. him. And, and it makes him feel
0: comforted to be in the past. Exactly. And he also, you know, he wears other things that give him this sort of thing like he constantly has on a digital watch you know, wristwatch and, um, uh, his gold aviators. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so he has like all these little things that regulate his, his right. time and his schedule. And then also, um, you know, the aviators are obviously, uh, hearkening back to the war. Mm-hmm. And, but this also makes me really call into question what his involvement as, uh, as a soldier was like what he, he actually yeah because yeah. he talks about losing his comrades all the time and all these other things but he his response like his reaction to that kind of conversation um is so blown out of proportion that it doesn't feel realistic at all it feels so, a projection
1: to some degree exactly right? yeah. so
0: so it feels like he's um he's recalling his time in the war the same way that he kind of reacts to everything that happens to him now. Right. That's so interesting. That's a good point. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he must have like in my mind he either had you know a desk job or maybe he was in Vietnam but only for like two days and never saw any action. and. You know, like it feels like that, like, it's just a part of who he is to yeah. blow everything out of proportion because when he went, he thought he would be a war hero, and he'd have all of these traumatic stories. And then right. his his expected his his um um his expectations. Mm-hmm fell flat with the actual experience and it just it made him more and more extreme as time went on we're learning about the character through the course of this plot and
1: then saying okay well their past should be we should be looking at their past with that context as well and saying if they overreact in yeah. this way, now than they may be overreacting it before, and then you look at that with the dude as well. It's not like he went from oh he was this activist who was a gung ho everything to mm-hmm. nothing. The fact that he even points out that he was one of the original authors, yeah, but not the version that came out, mm-hmm. meant that he wasn't active enough to have fought for whatever his version of it was yeah. to the end of that state. He half participated
0: yeah or perhaps whatever the event was Mm -hmm. that stopped him from being one of the authors for the version that came out perhaps whatever that is uh solidified his current right it set him on this trajectory so yeah there's some really interesting things there and the the costumes for especially these three characters, Donnie, the dude and Walter, they all really um, support these kinds of questions, like when audiences ask themselves those questions. And like, like we said at the beginning, it's not a heavy film at all. It's definitely like a very low-stakes, made-into-high-stakes sort of yeah. adventure movie where just the most absurd things that are possible happen. You know, Happy Gilmore, Hangover. It's like it has, like, a fast pace to it and these ridiculous things happen and somehow the cops never get involved. <laughs> you know, it's like all of that stuff. It's not like the script really needs all of this, like, heavy scaffolding to stand on. It does It's all of its own work by itself. But then once you look at um, the character uh, design, designs, um, how they're written, how they're designed, how they're acted or performed. There's there's a sense of everybody working together on the same thing, which I feel like in in contemporary film, you know, one of the problems that contemporary film has is it's not often rewarded. You know, most of the time we see awards for period film and for fantasy and sci-fi that's, well, really not even sci-fi so much you know that also gets kind of a bad rap but um with contemporary film like the big lebowski you get a lot of these character studies that are encapsulated because we're Mm -hmm. building closets for people Mm -hmm. instead of seeing like the costumes have their own life and kind of steal steal the screen which a lot of award winners do end up stealing the show in terms of costumes this one is just this really great um this really great moment of all of those things combined working perfectly together to support an absurd story.
1: Right. It seems like, you know, there's definitely the benefit of time, right? We curate with time. We start to go, okay, this is a capturing of this period. Here in this story, we're looking at California. Mm -hmm. It's a specific microcosm, little little area.
0: Very unique little corner. Little
1: corner (laughs) where unless we have the context, we don't see as much of the cleverness. To me, growing up in California and frequenting thrift stores definitely gives me like a vibe for like, okay, yeah, that's thrift store fare. Like, yeah, I recognize yeah. that, right? Even if it isn't being growing up, uh, even if it's not growing up in Venice, mm-hmm. for example. Um, it seems like something that I can see being overlooked in lots of ways. Just not not yeah. knowing how to
0: recognize the cleverness
1: right. of modern costume.
0: Well. I mean, it's a larger conversation, but sure, yeah. I, I think that one of the things that um, uh, we have a problem with when we try to analyze or critique mm-hmm. contemporary costumes is that if the characters aren't designed to be over the top or heightened, right. then we can't actually see the the psychology because we just see um, the stores that they bought them from, right? Right. And yeah, it's a it's a it's a really big question and something to tackle. I, I think yeah. that it takes a real specialized eye, mm-hmm. and a real consideration for um, for psychology in contemporary clothing. Whereas when you look at period clothing, oftentimes they're given license to be very conceptual, right. um, the palettes to be very tight. Yeah. Um. But I did a commercial when I first started designing outside of grad school. And I tried to do something that was a little bit more of a tight palette. Yeah. And I was told immediately by the producers and the client that it would look um, too put together. It looked too fake. Mm. And so I, I specifically had to go through and change everyone's costumes to be different colors and different styles and types. And. Even have them clash a little bit so that so that the audience might perceive them as being a real family, even though everything is fit too perfectly, right. everything is too smooth, every, you know, like all of those things that actually yeah. make real people. So there's a real – there are a lot of things that, that period costume is allowed to do that I think often we don't give ourselves – um, Licensed to do them in contemporary that
1: makes sense There's a little bit more and I, in this bringing it back to Big Lebowski definitely seeing how using things like these caricatured versions mm-hmm. of these points of view is a good way for us to feel like oh yeah that's familiar but it's obviously yeah, a, little a little bit of like a play yeah we're playing exactly. with it a lot more um, what did you think of Maud
0: oh my god <laughs> speaking of absurdity oh and wow modernism
1: I, I really, I thought that, I mean, the first impression I got was like, obviously her affectation that she puts on in her speech is so dramatic. And, and then when you look at her outfit and her haircut, everything, she is an art piece. She is the art piece of her... Yeah, she's untouchable. She is her own painting, Mm -hmm. right? And that is through her speech, her posture, how she carries herself, these dramatic, simple shapes that are just like art sculpture cloaks. The fact that her entrance is essentially nude and then cloaked. It's about the performance. Are you afraid? Is this what? What is your reaction? And yeah, she's, she's looking for she's, a rise, right? And she's not indirect about that. It's essentially: I'm walking up to you. I did this action, and I'm going to tell you that I did that action to see what your reaction was.
0: Yeah, and then when she doesn't immediately get this crazy rise out of the dude, right? Then she, I think, that's when she decides to ask him about going to see a doctor. And, and you're a can You're a worthy candidate. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Do you like coitus, Mr. Lebowski? (laughs) Right? (laughs) It's just perfect. Do you enjoy the act of sex? It's so so direct, direct. right? Yeah. And she also, I don't, you know, if I I should go back and look at this. I didn't actually look at it. But you get the sense in watching Julianne Moore be Maude that she doesn't blink on screen yeah if she does you don't feel it It, 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 it feels
1: like she wouldn't be blinking exactly
0: or if she's not blinking then she's just staring directly into the dude's eyes the entire time and doesn't ever look away, so it's incredibly, it's um un um what is that called? Unnerving. A disconcerting, yeah, unnerving. Exactly, exactly. Right. She has that. She has that effect
1: in her her language. She doesn't feel like she breathes. It's just it comes out in the appropriate length that it should be said with the vocabulary that performs it to the best ability. And exactly. I will, and you will not hear me breathe as if she's just an instrumentalist. Like just, it's just yeah. All of her breathing comes from
0: her, comes from her diaphragm. It's not her taking breaths and, like, mm-hmm. filling her lungs back up and then mm-hmm. pushing the air out of her lungs. It's, mm-hmm. like, all diaphragm work. Right. So, and the way that she speaks actually says a lot about the costume as well. Mm-hmm. The costume that she wears, the um, this green silk robe with that giant shawl collar. Yes. And, by the way, she puts this on after she is in a harness naked with knee-high socks and shoes. Uh flying through the air with paintbrushes spattering a canvas over top of the dude's head. So let's just remember, yeah, <laughs> she yeah. did that first. So absurd. Um but the the green robe that she puts on afterwards and starts to talk to him in was actually based on a leopard print coat from the 1950s and they thought that the leopard print just wasn't wasn't grand enough that it didn't leave like a sophisticated or an intellectual enough. Right. Um, it's not as sharp. Feeling. Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's not it's not quite mod. So her way of speaking, though, is very mid-century. It's very powerful and very quick and sharp and witty. And uh, so, it. you know, that that like relationship between Julianne Moore's performance and where the costume comes from, like those were obviously they were tied together um, to a point where her performance was supported by the costume and the costume was supported by her performance. Like yeah. it's another really good example, right. even though it's absolutely absurd. And the, the choice was definitely not mm-hmm. like the most modern choice. Maybe it's not what, you know, like an avant-garde artist might right. use during that period. In 1998, yeah, of, or of the period she's referencing, yeah, it might exactly. not be
1: that that extreme eccentric artist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But
0: so so it has this like very um, almost Sunset Boulevard-y mm-hmm. feel to it mm-hmm. because of the period that it came from and Moore's performance in it, her value of speech. So it was. I think that that was a really really good example of yeah. uh, of the two things working together. Um, and of course, the nihilists. Oh. <laughs> the german disco technila they're amazing oh my god the fight scene marmots. the fight scene is like like no. so funny okay. every part of that is so funny the best part of that though and this is just this is mary zopher showing her just absolute genius and and not only that but the cohen brothers running with it you know you right. can tell that they work really well together yeah. because during that fight scene mm-hmm. they're like pulling on each other and whatever Mary Zophers had the wherewithal to put them in tidy whities So during one of the scenes, you see... The guy's wearing tighty-whities underneath yeah. his leather, like, skin-tight Because <laughs> yeah, it's, so, it's
1: so revealing. It's so tight. It's
0: so perfect. It's right. so perfect. Like, that right. that kind of thing, those choices that that show up. And, now, maybe, you know, maybe it was planned. Maybe they had a conversation about showing it. Maybe, you know, all of those things could be possible. But the fact that it felt so natural and it felt like it happened serendipitously. Yeah. Right, and that when you get those moments, it's just it's just perfection. It's right. the perfect blend of design, supporting story, supporting character, and performance. Right. It's perfect. Yeah, Cohen
1: Brothers are amazing with serendipity in general. You're just like, oh my! Goodness.
0: I know. How do they do it?
1: Yeah, it's just wonderful. Some another thing that stood out to me was um, with oh. <laughs> So Mr. Lebowski, I was like, what is his name? It's not not name. coming to my mind. <laughs> Why am I? <laughs> yeah, so I love how you have this first impression of him. He's in this environment. It's completely grand. Everything on his wall is accolades to him. He's got this sharp suit on, red tie. It's all just clean and white and, mm-hmm. and stark and contrast. It just feels like he is... He is representing this, you know, do you have a job, sir, America, right? The businessman yeah. of America. Revealing later, as Maud tells us, mm-hmm. that he doesn't have any of his own wealth, that he's riding on his wife's money, and that he is all about this presentation, really switches a lot of the meaning behind some of the scenes you see. He's hiding behind this surface mm-hmm. presentation. And you see this moment with uh, the dude and him talking when he's admitting, oh, you know, Bunny's been stolen and I'm so upset. And, you know, don't you know what a man has to do with something? He's just got to do something as he's sitting there and lounging in his smoking jacket. Yes. And you suddenly just go, oh, wait a second. He doesn't do anything. He just he's talking a big game. And that's what his environment is. That was what his costumes portray. Yeah. And and the dude realizes it later and reflecting that Oh wait, he never actually did anything but yell at me. There was really nothing to be afraid of. That nothing was going to happen. No, it's
0: all a show. Like think about the the um, scene where he was sequestered after Bunny had been taken, and mm-hmm. he's sitting in his wheelchair, and he has the blanket over him, and he's listening. He's listening to this really dramatic music, right. and um, staring at like a giant roaring fire. Right, right, right. So I have to I have to mention that the T shirt yeah. that um that the dude wore is it's a Japanese t-shirt. Oh, the Japanese,
1: like, baseball yeah. shirt? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So it's a famous Japanese baseball player named Kaoru Betto. Mm-hmm. And the shirt says, when you translate it, it says, strongly influential. <laughs> and that just cracks me up so much. Mm-hmm. So much. That actually, when you think about it, like, the dude is strongly influential because he, mm-hmm. he has this sort of, like, passive mm-hmm. way of... You know walking through the story and triggering events like he actually mm-hmm. steals the guy's rug um he uh, but you know obviously it's because walter tells him to yeah, he's passive aggressive and he's his, passive aggressive, yeah, yeah yeah but uh, the dude is the one that right. that is influential in in setting things he's in
1: he's being rolled along but he is the ball like yeah, exactly. he he
0: is the one that directly creates that all him. the consequence yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Um, but I love that Kaoru Betto shirt. It really cracks me up. As soon as I saw it, I was like, wait, what is that? This- you know what? Oh it's, it's
1: interesting because, like I, I, like, I was going to look that up and I had, it slipped my mind because yeah. I was so curious. It was such a, a, a standout in his wardrobe. But it's also in a moment where you actually feel like he's becoming a lot more intentional and action. He's yeah. driving more of his own action, not just being pushed along yeah. by Walter. Exactly. He is really making decisions at that point. And so to me, just having the baseball shirt, I'm like, I wonder if that has something to do with taking oh, yeah. more action. Mm-hmm. But the fact that that means Strongly
0: Influential is Isn't it great? It's delightful. <laughs> as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, it's perfection. <laughs> um, so... So circling around to our final thoughts, I thought, obviously, I thought that the design was really well thought out and not just that, but the collaboration between writer, designer and performer mm-hmm. was really on point. Like you could tell that all of those people really talked about it and they were in sync. And maybe like those conversations don't have to be big or long, but, you know, if you if you tell you know, someone what your t-shirt translates to and, you know, all of that stuff. Like I know Jeff Bridges famously, he really finds his character in the fitting room. And so you can, you can sort of um, uh, really influence and become a part of this performance when you take the time to collaborate with those people as a designer. And when they give you the, res- the respect that you deserve and also collaborate with you, um, it just, it creates this perfect storm. And I think that yeah. this is, that example, um, but I, I was a little saddened by the fact that when Walter and the dude were in um, in a scene together, when they were standing next to each other in the frame, sometimes their palette was exactly the same you know they're the fishing vest and either the hoodie or the cable knit sweater that sort of thing from the dude they read on the screen Mm -hmm. as being almost exactly the same color tan or putty Mm -hmm. most of the time and I thought that I was kind of saddened by that because on their own they stand so well but in those moments when we get the two of them Mm -hmm. looking at the havoc that Walter has just unleashed upon the world (laughs) having both of them be in in this similar tone was a little bit sad. But other than that one that one critique, I think that the film is a really incredible example of costume design in the contemporary world and for contemporary characters.
1: Yeah, I think like I noticed I I noticed a lot about the color. I like a lot about how they used the color story. Like I was mentioning to you about the dynamics between them as colors, dynamics between them as these caricatures is where I see the plot evolving out of. Um, one thing I actually noticed, and maybe maybe I saw it differently. I don't was the was the moment when you when they're together and they're sort of cohesive in their palette. Is that after? Is that the fight at the bowling alley? When is that moment? Do you recall?
0: Um, it happened twice. Okay. They had just gotten into a bunch of trouble. Okay, of course.
1: I actually took it a little differently, and maybe it was just my interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. But I saw it as a shifting from Walter dominating to the dude dominating. And so in a very subtle way, you start off with with Walter wearing a little bit more dynamic colors, more maroons, more high contrast with his vest. And so that high contrast feels like it's more, you know, the rules and this dynamic. And he's a strong minded character. He's driving the dude to go get his rug. He's driving the action. Yeah. Right. And the dude is very, very muted, very analogous. And then as they shift through, you see different scenes. Like when uh, the dude goes to, for example, the porn producer's house, he's wearing this more lavender tone that usually blends into the environment quite subtly, very camouflaged. But in this dynamic orange couched area, he starts to stand out. And so in his passive costume, Mm -hmm. I actually saw it shifting towards seeing the dude wear more contrast, his white shirt with the baseball has a little bit more white, a little bit more dark sleeves. And now what I was saw seeing with Walter before with the contrast was happening with the dude. and then Walter was calming down to
0: let the dudes show up. I saw those those connected moments as yeah. transitioning between. Oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't I yeah. hadn't noticed that. You've always been incredibly perceptive of color color arc, you know what I mean? Because um, that's such a huge, huge part of animation. I think more so even than in film, right? Like, with the simplification that you yeah, have to do. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, you know, color arc is ubiquitous across all forms of storytelling, but right. I think in animation, because every single choice is um, conscious and controlled. Yeah, you you, you know? can't you can't shop. You have exactly. to create everything exactly. Right. And if you yeah. have a if you have a scene outside. Let's say that you have a scene out in somebody's yard. Well, in, in film, we're going to be sh- probably shooting outside in a yard where the color of the sky and the clouds is the color of the sky and the clouds and the color of the grass is the color of the grass, right? Right. But in animation, you have to choose those things specifically Mm -hmm. for that. Um, And you have to choose what color things become when it's twilight, for example, or when Uh it's like firelight. It's not something that just happens naturally due to another department. So I think that you've always been far more astute to those subtle changes. But, um, yeah, I can definitely see that being... Um, part of it that their that their power dynamic is changing, and therefore who is more saturated and desaturated. Right. A lot of this is again interpretation, and, and a lot of these moments
1: can be serendipitous, or yeah. it could be either way with the intention of the creators. Yeah. I think just, yeah, that's how I was seeing it because I was looking for it in that mm-hmm. symbolic way. Yeah, for
0: sure. Well, any closing thoughts on the dude and the big Lebowski?
1: Hmm. I mean, I I definitely just. I really liked it. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a poignant poignant thought. I really loved how they were able to create a really beautiful connection between the environment and the costumes, something mm-hmm. that you mentioned in your last comment. And I really enjoy having stories that are about passive characters leading mm-hmm. because it's very difficult.
0: It is so <laughs> difficult. I think it's it's got to be the hardest thing to juggle as a writer right, right? It's, it's it's the I
1: mean when you listen to script writing script writers talking about their tips for writing story, so many of them will just simplify it down and go unless your character's taking action, they're not maybe you need to reconsider who your lead is and you go, okay, well Lebowski does start to take action, but something about a passive character is you've got to force them into it.
0: That's really good. Well, <laughs> I think that's our first episode. I know. Oh my gosh, we did it. Chitter chatter. I don't remember how we did our
1: intro bump.
0: I don't. (laughs) It's a blur. It is a blur. It's all a blur. Um, Thank you for for being my (laughs) co-host. And thank you everyone who came in to listen. (laughs) Um, I think with that, that's it. Bye. Bye.